The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, and welcome to this week's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm your host, Ian Fisher, coming to you from the smoky Pacific Northwest, a beautiful part of the country that has been ravaged by wildfires these last couple of months. Uh, The air quality is a little better today uh, than it's been the last few days, so the windows are open, we're comfortable, and I'm ready to go. Uh, We have a great show today for you as usual. We'll peek behind the curtain at the financial aid office at BU, which will be a really helpful segment for anyone who's applying for aid at a private college this year or in the next couple of years. We'll also attack some of those things you've heard from the people on your block and in your neighborhood. Are they true? Should you be worried? Stick around for our second segment to find out. But first, we want to acknowledge that it is September, uh, where we're recording this. It's September 7th, where you're listening to this. It's September 14th, but, you know, still September. Everyone's back at school now, and if you're a senior with college ambitions, you've probably already had a conversation or two with your high school counselor or teachers on the subject of applying to college. There's so many pieces that go into this process that it can sometimes be hard to make sense of it all. Joining me today to talk about supporting documents, supporting documents, is my friend from across the river, Abigail Anderson. Good morning, Abigail. Good morning, Ian. How are you doing? I'm great. I love that I can say good morning to you because we're in the same time zone, whereas all the rest of our colleagues are on afternoon time right now. So that's delightful. It is a rare treat, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. So when we talk about this process, just in general, Uh, we talk, we focus on the product of a student's work and we call it the application. But the application has a lot of moving parts to it. There are the parts the student's responsible for and then there are the supporting documents that help build the total case for a student's candidacy. So let's just start with the basic idea and we'll drill in on the Common App especially because it's still the biggest application platform. What are the constituent parts of the Common App? So, as you mentioned, there's the actual form that students need to fill out, which is about six pages long, but then there are all these really important supporting documents that go kind of, if you were thinking about a physical file in an application, behind that application form that we're always talking about. So, there is a transcript, there is a school report that may or may not get updated a couple of times throughout the process, there are standardized tests that need to be submitted officially for most schools. Um, There are school-specific supplements. There are letters of recommendation. And there are other optional supporting documents like 
um, an artistic or musical portfolio. So mm-hmm. lots of different types of documents could support that individual form that we spend probably too much time talking about sometimes. <laughs> right. Um, and we when we... When we usually talk to families, I mean, I think students and parents, they think of the application as everything that college gets. But in the field, we would actually say, I think that we've got a student's file, right? And the file contains the application as one piece, but then there are letters of recommendation and uh, supplemental, uh, you know, art supplements or, or whatever it might be that a student contributes. So the file is the whole thing. The application is what the student is is responsible for. Is there, what are the things that the student sort of develops on their own, and where does the student need support from someone else? So the things the student will be working on are, on their own are, of course, the application form, the supplemental writing, and then almost everything else. I imagine a student is going to need some help with putting together. So that school report has to come from your guidance office or your college counselor's office. The letters of recommendation can't be written by the student. Um, They are informed by the student's actions and words, but they are written by your teachers. And most colleges will request that a student waives their rights to ever see those letters. The standardized testing, while the student takes the test, most colleges require that those Official scores are sent through the testing agency, through the college board or the ACT. So somebody else has to actually hit send on that document for the school to receive it. Um, The portfolio even, even if it's your work, you might be having an art teacher or a music teacher help you compile that portfolio and put it together. So almost every supporting document requires some sort of input from somebody outside of the student, him or herself. Right. And so, and when we talk about the application as being something that you're responsible for, obviously it's uh, a great idea to get support, have somebody look at your essays, uh, have a parent read through and proofread your application. But that's still something that you compile and that you press the submit button on. Whereas with letters of recommendation, that's being compiled and written and submitted by somebody else. Uh, and you don't know when it happens. Uh, they, they can tell you when it happens, but uh, it, somebody else is responsible for that happening. Uh, that said, students can sort of get the process started, right, to ask for letters or whatever. Um, how would you recommend a student approach the process of gathering those supporting documents, particularly the ones that are coming from teachers and counselors and other school officials? Well, I, I know, Ian, that you are a huge fan of Google Docs. I am also yeah. a huge fan of systems of organization like Google Docs. So I love any type of spreadsheet. And I think the first step that every student should take, once they've finalized even the name of one college that they're going to apply to, and definitely by the time they finalize their entire list, is to start keeping their own spreadsheet of the requirements and deadlines and supporting documents that are necessary at each school. Because if you're going to have to go to so many people to ask for their help, you need to be organized and you don't want to make the same request two or three or even nine individual times for each of the schools that you're applying to. 
So I think it's first and foremost really important to start with an organizational spreadsheet where you track the requirements and deadlines and fees of each individual college to which you are applying. And then from there, a student could compile some sub-lists of what they need from each student or from each person in their mm. application process. So maybe a list of what they need from the guidance counselor, which might include the school report. And I don't think I've mentioned yet, but your transcript is certainly going to have to be sent on your behalf as well. Right. Um, from the individual teachers, which letters do they need to submit to which schools? Which schools are you sending your SATs or your ACTs or your subject tests or maybe not at all for test-optional schools. So I would definitely start with an organizational spreadsheet and then work from there to create sub-lists of what a student needs from each person helping them. Very good. I, I, lo- I love that. And I think when you hear <laughs> that, you might say, that sounds like so much work. Um and it does. It, it takes a good amount of time to build a spreadsheet like that and to find all the information and populate that spreadsheet with yeses or nos or checklists. But if you don't have something like that, then you're going to be constantly checking the admission webpage for each of your schools because there's no way to keep straight all of the ins and outs and the requirements of each individual school when you're applying to six, seven, eight, nine schools. So this is a, a great task. Uh, if you, uh, as a student, your parents are sort of, you know, really interested in helping you and they want to support you, this is something you can farm out to your parents, especially those that really like spreadsheets as much as Abigail and I do. Um, but the <laughs> point is that it's, it's good to have something that you can look at um, and, and uh, refer to as you're gathering these supporting documents. Um, I've got a one sentence question. In, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say, this is the definition of that idiom, a stitch in time saves nine, right? So spending an hour or two up front to get the spreadsheet in place is going to save you so much time and angst or even nagging from your parents or nagging that you have to do of your kids if you are a parent down the road. Um, And the common application actually puts all of this information in one place for you in their requirements grid. You could use something like the requirements grid to help create your own spreadsheet and save yourself even more time. Exactly. Exactly right. Now, I, I had a one-sentence question that's very simple to you, and I think the answer is simple based on what you're saying. Can a student apply to college all by themselves without any help? No, not at all. It's, I think it's impossible because we, if, you, if we think about it, at the very least, somebody needs to send their transcript on their behalf if they're applying to the common application schools. Exactly. And I don't know if you read this story, Abigail, or if our listeners have read it, but there was a student this year who tried to apply to college all by herself. And she she fabricated a transcript and letters of recommendation and put them all together and was accepted to uh, the University of Rochester, which is a great school, very hard to get into. And uh, they found out because she posted on social media that she was going to the University of Rochester and her school said, wait a second, you didn't apply to the University of Rochester. (laughs) Uh, And they did some digging and she was actually, um, they came to her in her dorm room and told her that she needed to go because she had, her entire application had been based on fraud. So trying to apply to college by yourself, not a good idea. Doesn't work out well, uh, at least in that that example. Uh, Yeah. 
what are some of the documents that uh, are required um, and what are some of the documents that are optional and, and how does that vary from school to school? So this is definitely something that has been changing really rapidly as the common application adjusts to some new competitors. And, um, you know, we were just conferring right before this what what is actually required now? Because when, you know, we were both in college admissions, the personal essay was required at every single school on the common application, and, and that's no longer true. Um, so for right now, it seems like the school report and the transcript are required by all common application schools. And again, that's, those are two documents that will be submitted by your guidance counselor or your college counselor. Um, the, un, the, the optional documents are everything else, the, the essay, the portfolio, the testing, the letters of recommendation, um, the mid-year report, which is um, an update on your performance throughout senior year, um, but all of those are optional. Right. Um, and, and, you know, you can actually, it's unusual that you can send optional documents to schools uh, yeah. if they, you know, if they don't necessarily require something, you can still send it along. Maybe it's a second letter of recommendation. Maybe it's the essay that you wrote for those schools that do require it. Um, but, you know, you got to be aware of what colleges are actually going to uh, pay the most attention to, which is going to be those required documents. Um, how does a student, you know, a lot of these supporting documents, we talk about them being kind of out of your hands. Uh, how does a student help to make sure that these documents reflect their best selves? What are the, some of the things that they can do uh, to ensure that these supporting documents are as strong as the rest of their application will be? First and foremost, I think presenting yourself as an organized, on top of it student by making the request in a timely manner, um, by not making the same request nine different times, by asking politely by meeting the deadlines of your school or the requirements of your school to make these requests, that's the first step in making a really good impression on the people who are going to be helping you submit these documents. The other really big piece of this is the letters of recommendation are going to contain so much information about you as a student that happens both in the classroom and outside of the classroom. So I, as you know, Ian, I used to work at a boarding school, but I remind yeah. all students that your teachers see you in the parking lot, they see you in the library, they, they, they see you in the hallway, they may even run into your family at sporting events over the weekend or at the grocery store, and all of those moments of contact with you go into how they think about you when they sit down to write your letter of recommendation and I know it sounds a little bit big brother, but it is the fact of the matter, and especially for students who are just starting junior year, maybe this week or last week, um, 11th grade is the year that you're going to be asking your teachers to write your letters of recommendation from, and so it's very important to be aware of how you're conducting yourself as a member of your community and also in the classroom because, again, all of those moments could end up fueling the letter of recommendation that's written on your behalf. And and even if, you know, and it's good practice, right? I mean, even if nobody's writing a letter of recommendation, it's good practice to think about your citizenship as it relates to your school and the way that you interact with your peers and engage in the classroom. So letters are sort of a nice little 
uh, reminder that every day you come to school, you should be present and, and ready to engage in a positive way. Um, we have about a minute left, Abigail, and, and you know we're focusing on the Common App. I want to say that because most schools do use the Common App today, uh, there are some schools that are exceptions to those. But by and large, you're going to find that schools that use the coalition or the UC's uh, application or, or their own personal applications are going to have similar kinds of supporting documents, even if they're by known by a different name. Uh, is there any information that you want to share with our listeners about a difference for a major application platform that, that students might want to be aware of? So there's not too much different for the coalition application. It's going to be a really similar process. There's much less required um, in terms of the UCs. Um, the letters of recommendation won't come into play unless you're part of the pilot program at Berkeley. Um, but really, it, it's a similar process throughout these different platforms, even if you're using a school-specific platform like MIT's or Clemson's as well. Gotcha. Great. Well, I think that that's all really, really helpful. Um, and I want to thank you for your perspective and all the research you do on these elements of the application to help support these, these families. Thanks a lot for coming on the show, Abigail. Thanks so much, Ian. Of course. Uh, when we come back, myths busted. Don't go away. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. Listen, you can't believe everything you hear. 
Whether you're poring over posts on College Confidential trying to chance yourself at various colleges and universities, or you're just stuck next to a chatty Cathy at the Neighborhood Association meeting, it's impossible not to become inundated with absolutely true, absolutely critical nuggets of information about college applications. Guess what? A lot of that stuff is not true. Joining me to talk about some of those wild myths is my colleague from out in the Pacific, Mr. Steve Brennan. B, I hear things in Honolulu are beautiful this time of year. Is that true? They, they are beautiful this time of year, Ian. Thanks for having me on. Great. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm glad to have you. And this sort of this came out of a conversation that we had on our team listserv. Uh, you know, we were about 45 educators strong. And uh, occasionally we'll hear things from families and we'll just sort of run it by each other to say, this doesn't sound right to me. What do you think? Uh, and so we decided we would put together a list of these and talk them through on one of our radio shows um, which is why you're here and why we're doing it. So let's start with the one that sort of kicked off the whole conversation, which is uh, I hear that all the prep school athletes, they take the SAT in January. So that's an easier month to take it because the curve is different. Is that true? Right. This is this is one of my favorites, and this is one that it really takes a lot of self control. If I'm at a diner and the table next to me, for example, has this conversation, <laughs> I just want to I just yeah. want to lean over and say. You know, I didn't mean to eavesdrop, but no, think about this for a little bit. And, and I understand the myth. The process is not as transparent as we would like, and, and I understand the anxiety around this. And so people grasp at what straws they have, and it sounds sure. terrible. But then you start to think about it a little bit more, and you're like, no, no. You know, first of all, there's a lot of kids that take the SAT. And there's a lot of kids that take the SAT in January. And so for prep school athletes as a subset, even if every prep school athlete in the country took it on the same day, that's not going to be a big enough number to adjust the curve. But even if they did, even if they, they all took it the same day and, and they did affect the curve, SAT does something called equating in that they make sure the scores are even across test days. So there's really no advantage to taking it one test date over another. Uh, take it the test date that you're going to be most prepared. Don't worry about the curve. The data is going to all come out in the wash, and it's going to represent your best effort on that day. Right, right. And not to mention the assumption that the prep school athletes are going to score lower than you are. Right? Well, I mean, it might be that those, that, those right? students I mean, these, have these, some these intellectual course, uh, horsepower. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're uh, maligning prep school athletes here, aren't we? Yeah, no, absolutely, right? I've, I've uh, worked with a number who have been very, very bright and who would be bringing the, bringing the, uh, uh, the curve up instead of down, right? So absolutely. If, that's right, if it exists. But, you know, it's, it's a normed test. And, you know, frankly, those numbers are not valuable to colleges if they change dramatically from sitting to sitting. So uh, it, it, I think it's really important to, for families to understand that. I wanted to follow up on a, another question about testing. This, was, this sort of came out of that as well, which is that, uh, I, I hear that colleges don't really look at your score. They're much more interested in the percentile that you oc- occupy. So I got a 760 uh, on math level two, but it's only the 64th percentile. Do I need to take this test again? Yeah, that's that's a great one, isn't it? Um, so first of all, and in, in you and I and all our colleagues at College Coach and uh we're in the business, we read applications, and you're sitting in your desk in February or, or January, and you've got 600 applications to read, and uh, you've got various uh, spreadsheets and things open on your desktop and, and perhaps packed mm-hmm. your bulletin board if you're old school like me and want an analog. There's a lot of data that's at hand, but there's a lot of work to do. And depending on where you're working, first of all, 
subject tests might not be a huge part of the process, but assuming that they are, assuming that they are important and that you, that you need them, um, the raw score matters way more than the percentile. Um, and it's a matter of what do you think is your best, your best work on a given day? And so if you've got a 760 in the math too, I'm going to tell you not to take it again. That's a great score. Uh, I don't care where you're applying. I think you should sit with that. The opportunity cost is always something to think about here as well. So if I have to take the math two subject test again, what am I giving up to be able to do that and to be able to get a higher score? What, how much work do I have to put in to get that one extra question right to move the needle on my raw score? The raw score matters more than percentiles. Percentiles don't get listed on vote sheets. That's, that's, that's a myth that the percentiles matter more than the raw score. And something like percentile, I think that even that word, uh, I don't know if it was ever talked about in admissions committee as it pertained to anything. We often talked about deciles or quartiles as it pertained to a student's class rank to know sort of what section of the class a student was in. But the, the conversation around percentiles, especially as it pertained to testing, is was literally never a part of a conversation that I had in an admission committee, nor was it something that I ever wrote on a read sheet. And, and I think that that is consistent across um, almost all colleges and universities. So um, the, the four colleges and universities I worked at, that was not a thing. So, yeah. That's right. You've got a big sample size just in your, your personal <laughs> career experience, which is great. Uh, it's, it's essay season. Um, and we've got students that are working on their essays. I know a lot of students out there are working on their essays. And I, I've heard that I need a really grabby intro uh, if my essay is going to be effective. Is that true? That can be true. And the challenge with some of these myths is that sometimes there's, there's kernels of truth in them. And sometimes a great right. essay does have a grabby intro. And it's better for me to be interested by your first sentence than to be annoyed or bored. But... There's no magic formula for essays. If there were, if there were formulas for these things, we wouldn't have a job because we wouldn't need to be out here explaining this and, and, and helping folks figure these, these pieces out. So, right. um, yeah, a grabby intro can be helpful. Um, another related essay myth I've heard is that you've got to have a, a compelling personal tragedy and to, to, to get in, to have a successful essay. A grabby intro helps. If you have a, uh, a personal tragedy that's affected you, that you've learned from, that's shaped who you are, that's relevant to your core values, that gives me some authentic insight into the kind of person you're going to be on my campus, great. But if you reach for a grabby beginning that doesn't work for you, that doesn't sound like you, that isn't you, if you reach for a personal tragedy or try to make something that's relatively minor in your experience and try to extrapolate from that and make it sound like a tragedy, it's just not going to land well. So those are, those are two myths related to essays I, I, I just really caution students about. Be authentic. Be yourself. What are your core values? What do you want to get across? What's important to you? What's important for the admission officer to understand about you? And if you do that with a grabby beginning, great. If you don't, that's fine. That's fine. Right. Is it authentic? Is it you? Are you getting across what you want to get across? That's what, that's what matters there for the essay pieces. And I think, you know, I looked at an essay um, just a couple of days ago. I had a conversation with a student, and this student was actually trying to achieve both of these things in his first paragraph, to make it grabby Mm. and to expound on a tragedy. He was actually writing about an earthquake in China in 2007. Um, Now, that's problematic just because it was 10 years ago. So any 17-year-old that's writing about something 10 years ago, 
Now he's seven. So all of a sudden, we don't have really a good idea of who he is now because the context of the story happens long ago. The other thing was in his attempt to make it grabby. He had this very descriptive language about, you know, the rubble and the shaking and smoke around him and hearing the sirens. And it put you there to understand what that tragedy was like. But the student became lost. Now, I didn't have any sense of who he was or how this experience was different for him than it was for anybody else who was in that earthquake. And so sometimes mm-hmm. when we talk about a tragedy, it's very hard for us to, um, especially a shared experience, to talk about it in a way that helps to define us. And so in this kind of story, it's important to identify what was different about your experience and how you affected something. A tragedy can happen to anybody. The question is, what do you make happen in the wake of that experience? Where is your agency? Uh, And sometimes when students write about tragedy, I think they get away from that sense of their personal agency. Um, So those are important myths. And and I think, too, sometimes students reach for a tragedy that didn't affect them much or they've experienced something traumatic or significant. I, I worked with an awesome young woman a couple of years ago from the Bay Area, she was so excited at the first meeting. She's like, I've got my essay topic already. We don't really need to talk about it. And, of course, that always puts your antenna up a little bit, right? right. You're like, okay. Don't worry about that. And yep. she, she literally survived the shipwreck in the North Atlantic. And she had written a story about it, and it was, a great, it was great writing. And at the end of it, I, you know, I read it, and I, at the end of it, I said, okay, after this happened, tell me a time when you did something different because this happened. Right. And she thought for a second, she was like, yeah, no, I need a new topic, which is great that she had that self-awareness, even though she was pretty wedded to it, right? So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a tragedy, but what have you done with it? What did you learn from it? How has it shaped you? So um, I think sometimes, and, and honestly, you know, there were times in committee when we'd be a little callous about that, when a kid was reaching for a tragedy because he or she, you know, they, they, they thought they needed to, and we'd be like, mm, yeah, it's, uh, it just didn't land well. Right, right. And especially in a committee, I think, where, you know, you've got somebody who's going to bat for a student, maybe because they feel really connected to that personal story. You've got other people in that committee that say, I know that that's a sad story and and it's it's tough, but where's the where's that person coming out of that story? And you got to sort of pull back and, and be a little bit more rational when you're making these decisions at times. So it's a good reminder, I think, for students as they're thinking about their essay topics going forward. Um, I want to talk a little bit about some myths I hear around choosing where to apply. Um, I hear that it's hard to get in as an engineer. I think that's true. But I've also heard that if I want to be an engineer at a tough school, I should apply to be an English major. Is that true? I I love this one. This is one of my favorites. Um, And I, I pick on... Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, or, or Purdue University in Indiana as, as my two examples for this. So, yeah. um, great. Both, you know, both those universities have amazing engineering programs, some of the best in the country and the best in the world. Um, but I'm going to apply as an ag major, agricultural major, because, it's, you know, I can look at the statistics. It's easier to get in as an agricultural major and then switch majors once I'm there. Okay. Well, your admission office at Purdue or Cal Poly is not, you know, hasn't just fallen off the turnip truck to keep with the ag theme here, and, and she's going to look and say, are you an FFA, a Future Farmers of America? Have you spent a summer on a farm? Have you been on a farm ever, right? The application has to be consistent. It's true that the dean of admission at Purdue probably doesn't sit in her office and think, gosh, I wish I had more engineering applicants, right? Um, but 
your application has to be consistent. It has to tell a story and it has to make sense. I have to buy it. So if you want to apply as an English major, be an engineer or an ag major or a nursing major at Georgetown and really you want to end up in their, you know, uh, international relations program, but every one of your extracurriculars doesn't point at nursing or doesn't point at agriculture, doesn't point at the major that you're declaring, it's simply not credible. Your application isn't consistent and I'm not going to buy it. So what I don't want to have happen is a ninth grader right now start to do agriculture activities because he wants to be an engineer at Purdue or Cal Poly. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting that students should, should think about what story their activities tell, their courses tell. If you've been in robotics and you have a lot of math and science in your curriculum and, and, and you're really moving ahead in a direction that suggests to me that you're strong STEM, likely engineering, go for it. Many universities will allow you to list a second choice major. List your mm-hmm. first choice. If you're interested in Purdue because of their aeronautical engineering program, great. List that. List your second choice as something that's maybe a little less competitive. And once you're there, perhaps you can work, uh, work hard, get your grades up, and, and be able to transition into that first choice major. And your major might change. Your major might right. change as well. But to try to pull the wool over your eyes, pull the wool over the eyes of the admission officer is, is disingenuous and, and that's that's a bad strategy. It's just not going to work. It just doesn't work. And, you know, the I think one of the scenarios that happens, you get in, you're an English major. Now you're an engineer in an English major's body because you're you're taking English classes and there's no guarantee you're going to be able to transfer over to that engineering program anyway. So you really got to be aware that, it, you know, it's a process that doesn't work. We get asked about it every year, uh, but it really I don't, it doesn't work that way. Um, it, yeah. This is. I actually want to follow up on this because there are some things that you were saying about building, you know, your uh, resume, and you you come across as an engineer. I hear that colleges want you to focus on STEM in high school at the expense of other classes if you plan to be a STEM major. There's not a, a need to to take challenging language or, or English or social science classes, but to really go hard for STEM if that's what you wanted to. Is that true? No. Um, right. We, we hear this again every year too, right? Um, well, yeah. I've finished with Spanish. I had my two years and I finished with Spanish. Well, Cervantes didn't finish Spanish, first of all. Secondly, <laughs> colleges are looking for a well-rounded high school curriculum, the five by four, the five core subjects, all four years, regardless of what you're going to major in. If you take a step back from one of those five core subjects, which is English, math, science, social studies, and world language, if you take a step back from one of those, you better substitute in another one, but you also shouldn't do that to the point where you're missing big chunks of that well-rounded high school mm-hmm. preparation. Regardless of what you go into, whether it's STEM, whether it's international relations, whatever it is, we want to see four years of science. We want to see uh, four years of deep exposure to world language. Um, that's part of what it is to be educated, and that's pretty critical regardless of what you declare as your major. If you step away from language after 10th grade um, and you double up on math and science, that, okay, um, colleges are going to be wondering, you know, what your level of preparation is in those areas, and they're going to really critically examine the balance of your high school preparation. So it's better to have all of those five core subjects as long as it makes sense for you. I love to see the five by four, but if you don't quite have that, there can be reasons to step back from that. My niece is... uh, uh, very excited to be in her first month of engineering education in a university in the, in the Big Ten. And uh, she and I went a couple rounds about her dropping Spanish senior <laughs> year, but 
she made a good case and, and she substituted something else in and um, she had adequate preparation in that through Spanish three honors. And so we, we decided that that was an okay decision. There can be times when that's okay, but you don't want to go too far in that direction and completely step away from those things like the world language and not have any preparation in social studies or, or non-related areas to a STEM major. Right. Big fans of our show, I think, will probably have heard this conversation before about language, but I do think it's a it's a great place for us to repeat, and, and it's an important spot e- even to end on because it's one of the most widely parroted myths. I hear it every single year when I talk to families uh, whose students are in really challenging curricula that language doesn't matter beyond those first two years. Um, it, it really will, uh, and we would encourage students to have that nice, well-rounded curriculum. Uh, Brennan, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and helping us to unpack some of these myths. myths. I guess it's it's true. You can't believe everything you hear. Nope, you can't. Uh, I appreciate it. When we come back, we'll give you some more sound advice that you can really sink your teeth into, this time from our financial aid team. Don't go away. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. And we're back. Before we get to our final segment of the day today, I want to do another school spotlight. Uh, As a reminder, our school spotlights can be found on our website at blog.getintocollege.com. We've got tons of content there, including uh, these school spotlights that help you to learn a little bit more about an institution you might be unfamiliar with. Today, we're looking at Williams College. Williams has practically everything an active intellectual student might be seeking. Small student body with only about 2,100 undergrads, coupled with dedicated faculty, A dynamic campus set in the beautiful Berkshires of Western Massachusetts, 160 student clubs, and 32 varsity sports to choose from. 
and the list goes on. But what you may not know about Williams lies in their exceptional art and math departments. The arts are revered at Williams, as is evidenced by their ample studio and gallery space, as well as such intriguing course offerings as the art of almost nothing and experimental printmaking. On a typical fall weekend, students can enjoy performances of a visiting musical artist, a Chinese dance troupe, and a chamber music ensemble. While the visual and performing arts are among the 10 most popular majors at the college, mathematics and statistics place within the top five. The Williams Math Department was recently named an exemplary mathematics program by the American Mathematical Society, and it also features one of the largest undergraduate math research programs in the country, all at a school of only 2,100 undergrads. Fun fact, January at Williams is winter study, whereby students can spend four weeks pursuing an internship, an independent study course, or an international travel course. All right, and with that, we're going to head into our final segment, just to have a look at one of the largest and most popular private universities in the country, Boston University. Uh, Just last year, BU received some 60,000 applications for admission, and if you're a student looking for an urban college experience with tremendous undergraduate research opportunities, BU is almost certainly on your list. The question is, how do you pay for it? Joining us to talk about the inner machinations of the financial aid office at Boston University is my colleague, Shannon Baskin-Sellos. Welcome, Shannon. Hi, Ian. How are you? I'm doing well, and I just want to make sure our listeners know that you worked at Boston University in the financial aid office, right? I sure did, though I do want to make the caveat that it was a number of years ago, so I can tell you about my experience there, but I do want the listeners to know that uh, things may have changed since I was have been there because it has been a number of years. So, so don't things take me my word. You want to verify with the current financial aid administrators uh, about how the process works now, in case Absolutely. things have changed. Absolutely, and that that's true for for most of our behind the scenes uh, efforts. You know, obviously we've worked yeah. at College Coach for a while, but the thing about higher education is that it's a slow moving train. Um, think of it as a it's sort of a big oil ship out in the ocean. It takes a long time for something like that to turn around and change direction. Yes. So exactly. uh, a lot of what we're talking about is going to be relevant even if you're applying today. So let's start with the basic requirements. What was required for you uh, for families to apply for financial aid at Boston University? We required a lot usually. We were kind of up there with, you know, not many schools asked for more than what we asked for when I was working there. We required the FAFSA, of course, which is required by every college in the United States to apply for financial aid. We also required the profile form, um, which is not required everywhere, but it's pretty typical at some of the, the kind of more selective private universities, universities similar to Boston University, often require the profile form, which is very similar to the FAFSA, asking about your family situation, your income, your assets, but digs into a bit more detail. Um, If parents were divorced, we also asked for information from the non-custodial parent, um, which, again, is not looked at at schools that only require the FAFSA form. Um, But those profile schools that want to dig a little bit deeper into the family's financial circumstances, they're going to ask for information from both households, the households of both parents, Mm-hmm. Um, so we would look at non-custodial parent information. If the family owned a business, we asked for an extra form called the Business Farm Supplement to really dig into the details about the family's business. Uh, we mm-hmm. also asked for copies of tax returns um, to verify everything. Uh, also, the blood of your firstborn child. <laughs> I was going to say, this is intense, but, <laughs> we, it, you we know, but it's, it's helpful because right? you want to make the best 
financial aid package you can for the, the biggest number of students. Uh, exactly. and, and that means understanding sort of the financial details of, of all of the applicants for financial aid. Exactly right. Yeah, so we wanted to dig into more detail than some schools because we did have a decent amount of money to give, so it's not a bad thing when a school asks for all this information. Yeah. Um, but the schools that have a lot of money to give, they also want to be, um, you know, kind of careful about are we truly giving this to the most needy people? We've got this money. We want to make sure it's going to the people who need it most. So we're going to dig pretty deep. So uh, what did you do with this information once it was collect- collected? How did some of these pieces fit together and, and help to give you a sense of what a family would qualify for? Yeah, so all of that financial information that we would collect would be basically fed through two formulas, um, and, and this may have been discussed previously on different episodes of the show, but we would use the federal methodology, a federal formula to determine what the student was eligible for in any government financial aid from the federal government, from the state government, but then we would use this other formula called institutional methodology to determine mm-hmm. eligibility for any BU grant aid, the money directly from the university. Um, and the the actual, you know, calculations themselves would all actually be done through a computer. But what we were doing kind of as a financial aid officer was making sure that the numbers we wanted were fed into that computer formula. Um, so we, what we would basically do is look at the FAFSA. We would look at the profile. We would look at the tax returns. And we would look for any discrepant information. And we would have to, you know, resolve those discrepancies. So kind yeah. of a very typical example would be, you know, if a family said reported having no assets. They've got no money in the bank. But we could see on a tax return that they had, you know, thousands of dollars of interest income. Well, that sure looks like you've got some money in the bank. So that's, we would have to resolve that. And we could do that a couple of different ways. We could contact a family, ask them to document what their actual assets were. You know, you say you have this small amount of money, but it looks like you should have a bigger amount. Did you spend that money? You know, please document um, what happened to that money. Um, The other thing we would do, and this, uh, lots of schools do this, is project assets. Um, So, if we thought that the number the family reported did not look realistic, we would just make up a number that we thought <laughs> was realistic based on the kind of interest or dividend income that they had. And that's something that can be done with those schools that use the profile. Uh, there are a number of kind of options. There's kind of a standard profile formula, but then there are options, and you can you know, assume the family is earning a 2% interest rate, 5%, 10%, and protect, project assets based on that. We would do things like um, if they owned a business, um, looking at the deductions they took for their business and to try and figure out are those real deductions uh, that actually cost them money or are those kind of paper uh, expenses that, uh, you know, just as an example, if somebody who owns a business, they can deduct depreciation on their car um, on to get at kind of a lower income on their tax return. Those of us who work a job where you make a salary, you might drive your, your car to work every day, but you can't deduct the depreciation on your car. So we wanted to try and put uh, people on kind of an even playing field. And so we would do things like add back depreciation expenses um, because they, they weren't a real expense experienced by the family. We would look at the family's household. Did they report that grandma's in the household? Um, we would have to figure out, is, are the parents really supporting grandma, or maybe she has her own income to figure out if we should count her in the household or not. Uh, if there was a sibling maybe attending private high school, 
would we subtract those expenses from the family's income um, at BU? We would not do that as a matter of course, but if the family explained special circumstances that the student had special needs, which uh, where the private high school was a better environment, that was a circumstance where we would add them back. And again, different schools can do different things with this information. Some private schools, as a matter of course, will allow for siblings in private high school. So those are, you know, all sorts of little things like that that we would look at um, to try and get at the the numbers that we really wanted to use, which again would may not be directly what the, the parents reported um, on the financial aid applications. We would then run those numbers through the formula formula to calculate your expected family contribution. We would subtract that from how much we cost, and then that was your. BU institutional need level. So all of this gotcha. kind of finagling was done to get at the family's true need level, according to us, and that, that was the number that we cared about. Now, um, I just want to do a, just a quick question, which is that my sense of this is that uh, BU's process as a private school is very similar to other private schools that um, and of a similar tier, similar level of selectivity that requires exactly. similar forms. Is that right? Yeah, I would say so, that uh, that schools that ask for that profile form, that's a good indication that this is a school that, that digs pretty deep and is going to be kind of making these comparisons. Um, and again, unlike the schools that just use the FAFSA, it's really a standardized formula. So if you apply to a number of schools that just require the FAFSA, you should see the same expected family contribution from every school. At schools gotcha. that use the profile, there are different options that the schools can choose to, to opt in or out of. Um, so mm. you may legitimately see different EFCs from different schools that use the profile because they're taking all these different things into account. And that's, you know, you might see that, you get financial aid offers that look very different. You might think oh, some mistake has been made. But it's really just the school's institutional policies and what their priorities are and how they determined um, they want to award their money. Gotcha. Okay. That's, that's really helpful. Um, this sounds like a, a very painstaking process on your end in the financial aid office. Is, is this something that a family should be concerned about uh, as they're submitting these forms? Or is most of this just sort of happening behind the scenes and you might get a call and a request occasionally? How does this thoroughness uh, affect a family yeah. after they've submitted all those forms? Yeah, it's, you know, there's not anything really kind of that a family has to worry about with these these kinds of things. Again, they may get a request for additional information. That's not something to freak out about. Um, it just means you need to provide the information in order to get money from the school. Um, the only thing that I would say, you know, a family should be aware of that, you know, schools are looking at, at some of these things and they are kind of digging deep. So if you have anything that you think think might look a little bit odd on a financial aid application, like the fact, let's say, you report zero in the money in the bank, but you've got thousands of dollars of interest income. Um, but that's correct because, you know, you had a bunch of money that accrued this interest and now you bought a house. And so that money has been spent. It's gone. Um, that may raise a red flag for a financial aid office because they don't know that you bought a house. That's something that we don't know. So if you get a sense that you... There may be something that looks a little weird to the aid office. Explain it to them. Send an email in with your financial aid application um, so that they don't have to uh, start questioning you later or they don't do something on the back end, like I mentioned, you know, projecting assets. I'm just going to assume that I think that you should have $100,000 in the bank if you truly don't. 
um, you'd want to explain that so that to make sure that the school is using the most accurate information. Gotcha. So you've determined through all of this, you've got your Sherlock Holmes hat on and your magnifying glass, <laughs> you're pouring over all these documents, and now you figured out how needy a student is. Uh, basically, whatever BU decides based on their formula, a student would qualify for. Uh, what happens next? Does BU meet the student's full need? Uh, is there some other kind of formula that takes things into account? How does that process work? Yeah, so BU does not guarantee that they will meet a student's full need. There are actually very few schools that do that in the grand scheme of things. I think it's less than about 100 schools um, that do guarantee that they'll meet every student's full need. BU does not make that guarantee. Um, And what they do is they now look at now the next step in the process is that they have a number of different financial aid awarding models that a student can get put on. Some of them are very generous where the student's full need will, in fact, be met. Others are much less generous where they may get their need met up to a certain amount, $5,000, they, they um We would not give them any more grant money than that. We called those capped grant models. Um, and then there was uh, other models that we would call Fed funds only, where they would get zero grant money from BU, no matter how needy they were. Um, they would just get any federal aid that they were eligible for. And what determined what model you went on was a ranking that you received by the admissions office. So we got mm-hmm. files sent down to us in financial aid from the admissions office. They would rank students, I, I believe it was one through eight, based on basically how bad BU wanted to recruit this student. And the mm. students we really wanted to recruit the most, they were ranked, you know, one, two, or three. The ones we didn't care as much about recruiting were, you know, seven or eight. Um, and that was determined by, you know, a lot of different factors. Number one, their academics, you know, the top students academically. We really wanted to recruit them, the ones with the best grades and test scores and all of that. They would be highly ranked. Um, If they were applying to maybe an unpopular major, that was something that went into those decisions. You know, BU is very known for their communication school, their journalism program. So lots of of kids wanting to major in communications would apply to BU. We had trouble attracting kids to other majors. So so that... um, went into the, the rankings. Um, gotcha. Your ethnic racial background, we wanted to recruit um, more black and Hispanic students. That would get them a higher ranking. Geography played into it. You know, we really wanted to brag that we uh, had students from all 50 states on our campus. So if you were, you know, the very, one of the very few students who applied from, you know, Montana or North Dakota, um, you were going to get a high ranking, so you were likely to get your full need met, whereas right. if you didn't meet any you know, very specific need that BU had, um, you maybe just barely got in based on your academics, then you were given one of the lower rankings and you would not get your full need met. Gotcha. Well, I, that is a really comprehensive view at sort of how those pieces fit, fit together. We're out of time, so we can't talk about appeals today, but I would encourage our listeners to go and look at our archives where we've talked about financial aid appeals in the past. Uh, thank you, Shannon, for coming on the show and talking us uh, behind the scenes, taking us behind the scenes at the BU Financial Aid Office. Oh, you're very, very welcome. My pleasure.
No worries. So next week, we will take our listeners across town to Cambridge for a look at the inner workings of the Harvard College Admission Office, BU to Harvard. The conversation will be led by Sally Ganga with our colleague, Rebecca Bestoff. We'll also be taking a deeper, harder look at the Applied Texas essays that we introduced in our show back in early August. And Shannon will be back to talk about financing a degree in the health professions. That's all for today's show. Whether you're hunkering down to wait out a hurricane or staying indoors to avoid smoke and fire, we hope that you and your loved ones are safe and healthy through this weekend and on into the coming weeks ahead. Have a terrific weekend. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.